0: You're listening to the Fellowship Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Fellowship Baptist Church is located in Clark Lake, Michigan. Today we're very excited to have a special guest speaker with us. Now let's prepare our hearts as our special guest brings forth God's truth from His Word today. I was in Lansing today. I was meeting with our attorney. I work with two different attorneys on a regular basis because I feel like the case for Christian liberty is so dear. If we lose that, we've lost everything. And so one of the main responsibilities that I have in going to Lansing and to Washington, D.C., when I talk with our elected officials, is to talk about who we are. Um, We have term limits in the state. And so what that means is every two years, one-third of the House is turned over. Every four years, half the Senate is turned over. And so in six years' time, I'm working with a whole new set of people there. And it's constantly educating them, letting them know who we are, what we stand for, what is important to us. Uh, the primary thing that we ask for from our elected officials is to leave us alone. Uh, the last thing we wanna hear is, I'm from the government, I'm here to help you. And so we, we will do just fine without their help. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that as we get into this, but if you have your Bibles tonight, I would like us to talk about um, our responsibility, our stewardship that we've been entrusted with. You know, the heart of the Michigan Association of Christian Schools was started with a man by the name of Dr. Paul Vanneman out of Dixie Baptist Church in Clarkston. And any of you, if any of you remember Dr. Paul Vanneman, I think it's fair to say he didn't exactly graduate from charm school. You never had to wonder what he was thinking. He would tell you exactly what the score was he would come to your church and he would preach about the cause of Christian education and his text would be 1st Samuel chapter 17, is there not a cause? Isn't there something in this culture bigger than myself that is worth standing up for and fighting for and if need be dying for? Is my life to be consumed on me? Is everything that I have supposed to be about me? There is a wonderful book, uh, not a wonderful book, but a pretty good book. A couple of years ago, the very first sentence of the book said, it's not all about you. Life is not about us. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. I love the attitude of John the Baptist. He must increase. I must decrease. If tonight, if behind this pulpit, if the only thing you see is Tim Schmig, I have failed miserably. I'm an ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's why we're here. After Paul Vanneman would preach a message on is there not a cause, 1 Samuel chapter 17, he would let, let the dust settle in your church, and then he would come back maybe a year or so later, and his second message would be out of 2 Samuel, David sees that there is a new giant in the land. This giant is Ishbabinab. Do you know that the giants never go away? You and I will always be fighting for something. That's one of the reasons why the Lord gives the analogy, Paul gives, gives the analogy, that you and I are Christian soldiers. We put on the whole armor of God because there will always be a giant for us to face. And the giants that we face now, like the book of Esther would say, you and I are here for such a time as this. This is our battle to fight. This is our cause to pick up the sword, to put on the armor, and to say, I'm going to stand up for the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm going to stand up for what's right. ish is a relative of, of Goliath, and David is old. David doesn't have the strength. David doesn't have the vigor. David doesn't have the agility that he used to have, but there's a giant out there, and giants need to be fought. And so what David does is he takes his nephew with him, and his nephew goes and helps him slay the giant. The purpose of that message is this. What are we doing to train the next generation to face the giants? Are we preparing them to stand up and to fight for what's right? Well, as Christians, we've been entrusted in God's word with three wonderful institutions that he wants us to to take heed with, to invest ourselves in. Let's take a look at these tonight, and we'll start in Genesis chapter 2. Three institutions that we need to be good stewards with. When we talk about stewardship, it means taking care of something, being responsible for something, causing an abundance to come from that, good results. We see the very negative parable of the steward who did nothing with his talent. He buried it. And the Lord rebuked that steward. We're supposed to come to the end of our life and say, Lord, you've given us these few talents. I've done something with it for you. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 22, we see the very first institution that the Lord made that you and I are supposed to be good stewards of. The sacred historian records these words for us. He says, And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman and brought her unto man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. What institution does the Lord give us here? What is this called? It's, it's marriage. It's the family. And if you and I could read this as, as Adam said it, when he, the very first time he saw Eve, he said this. He said, Wow! At last. He saw all the animals. Everybody else had a pair. He didn't have a partner. And then Adam does something that's amazing. He gives us the first poetic couplet in Scripture. Ladies, you do that to us. Can I ask you something, ladies? When you were dating your husband, did he ever write you a love note? Did you save those love notes? Would it be a good idea to go get those things notarized and say, You said this. I'm holding you to it. Huh? But God gives us the institution of the family, and I think one of the best gifts God ever gave us was the institution of marriage and the family. I was with a young pastor, a brand-new church plant, probably not five or six years old, and just this last year, they got their first van. Do you remember what it was like When we were young, and the church was small, and every new purchase was exciting, he got a church van, and he was telling me about it. And it was um, one of those vans that's uh, certified. It's only two years old, and he's all excited about it. And he said, we've got our church name on the back of it. And I said, what verse are you going to put on it? Because I hadn't thought of that. And I said, if I were you, and it's just me, if I were you, I would put male and female made he them, in the image of God made he them. I would want every single person in the community that I live in to know that when you send your children, your little girls to our church, they will be taken care of. They will be safe here. And we believe in the institution of marriage. We believe in the sanctity of marriage. It's an institution that the Lord created. Now, culturally, isn't it interesting that in our present cultural battle, the conflicts that we have with the homosexual community, they want their union to be called a marriage. They want the sanctity of that name on what they do. And it's almost like a backhanded compliment in that we don't acknowledge the God who gave us that, but we want to have that as a title. And so the first institution that the Lord gives us, he gives us the family. And it's something sacred, it's something special. The second institution I want to talk about is in Acts chapter 2. Turn with me, if you will, over to there. It's going to be a little bit like a sword drill tonight. We're going to be around the Bible, looking at a few things. Acts chapter 2, and verse 46. WE READ THESE WORDS, AND THEY, CONTINUING DAILY WITH ONE ACCORD IN THE TEMPLE, AND BREAKING BREAD FROM HOUSE TO HOUSE, DID EAT THEIR MEAT WITH GLADNESS AND SINGLENESS OF HEART, PRAISING GOD, AND HAVING FAVOR WITH ALL THE PEOPLE. AND THE LORD ADDED TO THE CHURCH. THE SECOND INSTITUTION, THE LORD ADDED TO THE CHURCH. THE SECOND INSTITUTION I WANT TO TALK ABOUT IS THE CHURCH. WHAT WE'RE DOING HERE TONIGHT, WE ARE A CHURCH. WE CAME HERE TONIGHT TO SING PRAISES TO THE LORD to give glory and honor to the Lord, to pray to the Lord. We came here, not as a social institution, trying to solve society's ills through a social gospel. We came here doing the most loving, kind thing that we can do. We meet and praise the Lord, and then we go out and we tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ. What a, what an opportunity for us to pray for the people of Bolivia. I mean, Satan will, Satan is wily. Satan will do anything he can to subvert the gospel and they take something that is absolutely horrible, human trafficking, and says, this is what they do. And yet, you know, it, it's so consistent with the history of the church. Do you know that Christians have always been misunderstood? And one of the things that they would do is, is the pagans would look at us, look at our early church fathers, and they would say, they eat flesh and blood. They're cannibals. They didn't understand what the communion service was about. They must be incestuous. They call each other brother and sister, and they're not related to each other. And they do all of these things. They think we're a secret society, and yet our doors are open. We're a public institution. We're a public, uh, public entity. They know all about us. They can know everything about us if they want, but we're a church. We are here to carry out the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ to go out and to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And one of the institutions, one of the responsibilities of the church is Christian education. We are supposed to be teaching and instructing this generation and the next generation in the principles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for that, we have Sunday school. For that, we have Christian schools. The church is the umbrella organization over our ministries. We're a church. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. And then the third institution that I want to talk to us about tonight is our responsibility to human government. Turn with me, if you will, back to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. And verse 6. To protect the nobility of life, the sanctity of life, The Lord instructs, and he says, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. We're instructed that in society, somebody takes another person's life, God says that person's life is to be taken from them. There is a sanctity, there's a nobility of life. God gives government. Now think about it. Of the three institutions that we have, the family, the church, and government, this is what I hear often in various degrees, something like this. I love my family. I would do anything for my family. My family is a priority for me. And then they'll say, and I love my church. Every time the doors are open, I'm a, I show up at church. I volunteer for things. I do whatever I can. I teach a Sunday school class. I'll work on a bus route. I'll help with any activity, a youth activity. I love my church. Politics, that's dirty. They're all crooks. We've done this drill before. How many of you have ever thought they're crooks? Come on. Be honest. We're in church. All right. We have term limits in the state. Every politician should get two terms. One in Congress and then one in jail. (laughs) And yet you think about it. God gives us these institutions. Here's a thought I want you to think about. Here's homework if you want to do this. I want you to think of every biblical character you can possibly think of and then say, did they have any responsibilities in government? Did they touch the leaders of government? Did they have any responsibilities in the country that they lived in, in the time that they lived? Did they have any organizational, governmental responsibilities? And I think you'll be surprised when you come to the results of that. Now I want you to think about something. There are only two nations in the history of the world that ever started out right. Old Testament Israel and the United States of America. For those of you who study and know a little bit about American history, can you name any other country that from its inception to today, everything it ever did was documented? In written form, charters, journals, everything. I've asked this before but when was the nation of France started? Who knows and you know the rest of it. But in America, Israel is the nation of promise. I can show you beyond any shadow of a doubt God gave promises to Israel, no other nation has ever been given. He will bless them that bless them. He'll curse them that curse thee. In thee shall all the nations of the world be blessed. I will make you as the sand upon the shore, the stars in the sky. God is going to bless Israel in an amazing way. He loves Israel. The Old Testament says God loveth Israel forever. There's no verse in the Bible that says God loves America forever. But he loves Israel forever. But I can show you beyond any shadow of a doubt Pastor talked about the books and the briefcase and everything. If we had ours tonight, I could show you that America is the nation of providence. That God has blessed us like no other nation in the world. Given us things, protected us, delivered us, did things for us that he has done for no other nation in the world. And he's blessed us beyond any shadow of a doubt. Because of that, we have some amazing songs in our hymn book. Turn with if if you will, to hymn number 126. I want you just to think about the words of this song and think about what it says and that as a nation, we sing this song. Canada doesn't sing this song. France doesn't sing this song. Italy, Germany, Iraq. It's my country tis of thee, right? I want to make sure I get the right thing. My country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty. What verse is inscribed on the Liberty Bell in Washington DC? Proclaim Liberty throughout all the land. Do you know that our founding fathers talked about Liberty in a biblical sense? Today's society has taken that word Liberty and translated it to be freedom. I can do what I want. I have freedom over my own body, I can do whatever, I have freedom to do what I want. And yet the Bible talks about liberty. I have liberty to do what's right. My country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, I love love the uniform. I honor any person who wore the uniform. I'm thankful that they do what they do for us. Land of the pilgrim's pride, they looked forward to this country, to coming here. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. And then look down at the fourth verse. There is no nation in the world that has the comparable equivalent of verse four. Our Father's God to thee, author of liberty. Do you know that when you read our founding documents, first source documentation, the secularists will say George Washington was a deist. George Washington didn't have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. George Washington wasn't a very religious person. Do you know that when you read the correspondence of George Washington, he has 85 different titles of God that he uses in his writing? If you want to be impressed with that, just sit down with a blank sheet of paper and say, how many titles of God can I come up with? What can I use? And yet, here's the man who is the President of the United States, commanding Uh, chief officer of our armed forces of the Continental Army, 85 different titles for God the Father, for deity. Our Father is God to the author of the liberty of thee we sing. We sing to you because you gave us this. Long may our land be bright with freedom's holy light. Protect us by thy might. We can't do it ourselves. We need your protection. Great God, Then think about this, What did we fight the Revolutionary War for? for? To get rid of what? A king. Great God, our king. You know, when you read the Declaration of Independence, and I would encourage all of you to read the Declaration of Independence, you get past the preamble, when in the course of human events, you get to that long middle section that nobody ever reads. And then you come down to the very bottom where it says we mutually pledge our lives, our fortunes, our sacred honor. That long middle section is the most important section because it has theological ramifications. What Thomas Jefferson and the Founding Fathers are saying this. God judges nations, and he judges nations when nations commit sins. And here are all of the transgressions of King George III and Parliament. And because of all these transgressions, we are appealing to heaven. To protect us. Great God, our King, not George III, not anyone else, we're looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. When revolutionary soldiers would go off into battle, they would say their battle chant was no king but Jesus. So we have a wonderful heritage that we need to think about and that we need to be thankful for. So when we take a look at this, what's our responsibility to government? Well, the first thing Romans chapter 13, we need to obey the laws. We need to be good citizens. The second thing we need to do, we're supposed to pay our taxes lest we should offend them. Now, the difference between being an American and taxes and a patriot and not a patriot. There are people in Washington DC who wish that every single day that America means to them April 15th pay more taxes and yet you and I as patriots say you know what the best day in the whole world is July 4th celebrate Liberty celebrate the fact that God gave us this country like he did and we realize that all government comes from the Lord John chapter 19 in verse 10 through 11 Pilate says unto the Lord at his trial he says speakest thou thus to me Knowest thou not that I have the power to crucify thee and have the power to release thee? Jesus answered and said, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. All government comes from the Lord. And it's amazing in in the book of Daniel, four different times in the book of Daniel, the Bible says, God appointeth whomsoever he will. Why do we have the governor we have today? God appointeth whomsoever he will. Why do we have the president that we have today? God appointeth whomsoever he will. And I would be the first to admit to you, during the primaries, I didn't vote for the person who's in the White House today. I voted for somebody else. But when it came time for the election, when we look at the opportunities, when we look at what we have, when we look at what we could have had, how this country could have ended up a year and a few months ago, God has been good to us. Just think about the appointment of somebody like Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court, a pro-life constitutionalist, strict constructionist on the Constitution. We have been blessed, we've been protected. But what do you and I do as believers if our government doesn't obey God? Acts chapter five and verse 29 says, and Peter and all the other disciples says, we ought to obey God rather than men. If ever there were a decree that says, Pastor, Pastor White, it's not going to happen, no church on Sunday. We ought to obey God rather than men. When the Michigan Association of Christian Schools lost their court case, we did everything that we could to fight for our right to exist. It went all the way up to the Supreme Court and we, Michigan Supreme Court, and we lost. And so a representative from the State Board of Education called Dr. Paul Vanneman, and said, Dr. Vanneman, President of the Michigan Association of Christian Schools, you've lost your court case, what are you going to do? Pastor Vanneman said, well, we have 63 schools in 63 different cities, you better get a sheriff in front of every single school and start arresting people. We're not going to obey that law. We are having school on Monday. And the voice at the other end of the phone said, oh... I didn't know you were that serious. We had just spent $350,000 for our right to exist. And so for years, they've left us alone. Now we realize that it's only by the grace of God and the favor of those who are in office that we as homeschoolers and Christian school students have the right to exist, but we ought to obey God rather than men. Think about it. In Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the plains of Babylon. Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah are on the plains of Babylon. And on the plains of Babylon, everybody is supposed to bow down to the golden image. And it is amazing. They don't stand out until everybody else bows. And as soon as they bow, they're now in trouble because they're going to be put into a burning, fiery furnace. And so they're brought before the king, and the king says, I'm going to give you another opportunity. You need to bow before this image. And they said, we're not, we're not um, quick to answer thee, Our God is able to deliver thee, to deliver us. And then they use an amazing phrase. They say, but if not. Now, in common culture in the last couple of years, the idea of Dunkirk has been in the the news, in the media. Do you know that when the British soldiers were on the beaches of Dunkirk, one British officer pleading for help from the British people, cabled a three-word cable back to London. And all the cable said was, but if not. And everybody with a biblical discernment in England knew, we need to help these. And they came up with a Citizen Armada to go and to rescue their soldiers off the beaches of Dunkirk. But he says, we're not, we're not careful to answer thee. Our God is able to deliver us, but if not, and then a few chapters later, the kings, the princes, want to get in favor with the king, and so they sign a decree that nobody can request anything except they requested of thee, O oh king, live forever. And if you think about it, the, the unintended consequences of most legislation is they don't think these things through. And in not thinking it through, what they actually said is they could never say I could never say, Brother Corser, would you please pass the salt and pepper? What I would have to say is, O king, live forever. Would you please ask Brother Corser to pass me the salt and pepper? And the king thought it was a good idea. He signed the decree. And I love the passage where it says, And Daniel, knowing that the decree had been signed, opened his windows and prayed, and then those wonderful words at the end of the verse, as he did aforetime. He lived right before the decree, so it was very easy to live right during the decree and after the decree. When our government disobeys the written word of God, you and I don't lift up a sword against the government. John chapter 18, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's ear, cut off his ear. Jesus said, put your sword away. Put it back in its place. For all that take the sword shall perish by the sword. So what do we do? Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 3. What's our response? 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You go to church four or five times a week? Yep. You tell other people about your faith? Yes. You believe water baptism? Absolutely. Absolutely. You have communion, yes. You give one-tenth of your income. That's a start, it's a start, amen, all right. I believe the principles, the words of this book. I'm ready always to give an answer. One of the responsibilities that we have in Lansing and Washington, D.C. is just explaining who we are and what we're about. I would love for every single one of you to come with me any Wednesday, I'll take you any day of the week. They're there Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I was there today, I'm there every Wednesday when they're in session. All of you are welcome to come. I would love for you to come. But I wanna show you something that I've found in Lansing that has bothered me just a little bit. There's a book out, it's called Rewriting Our America's History. And it makes an amazing statement. It says, it's happening through the rewriting are reinterpreting of America's historical records. In our national parks, monuments, memorials, in some cases, the changes are subtle and in others, blatant. Every time I go to Washington, D.C., and I see scaffolding around one of the buildings with a Bible verse in it, I have to be honest with you, my heart sinks a little bit. Because I fear that they will be up there and through political correctness, remove that Bible verse. It's done through the removal of key historic pieces that do not support the current ungodly bias. It's also done through the emphasis and de-emphasis of historic periods according to what fits the mold. I was in Lansing last month in December. A state senator said to me we were talking about curriculums in secular schools. And he said, Dr. Schmig, let me tell you something that bothers me. My granddaughter is in a secular high school. And she brought her history book home and I was just paging through it and I got to the section on World War II and this history book in a Michigan classroom said that two important things came out of World War II. Number one, we interned the Japanese and number two, we dropped atomic bombs on them. Can I ask you something? Do you think there might be something else about World War II we could emphasize? The fact that during World War II the angels of liberation spoke English, the fact that during World War II we stopped tyranny, the fact that during World War II Christmas time 1944, General Patton issues a prayer for all of his troops in order to pray for fair weather that they might uh, free the, the um, soldiers that are trapped at Bastogne. Do you think that they might be able to emphasize the fact that at the at the D-Day landing? President Roosevelt prayed over the national radio for the safety of our troops. Do you think that there might be just a few things about World War II we could emphasize other than the fact that we interned Japanese Japanese citizens and dropped the atomic bomb? But they rewrite our history. It happens not only there, but even closer to us. If you went with me to Lansing a couple of years ago, and we stopped by the information desk, you would have picked up a brochure that looked like this. It's kind of a two-color brochure. It's called the Rotunda Art Guide. Maybe some of you have seen this. And in this art guide, it gives you just a little walking tour, if you want, of the different pieces of art that are in there. It'll tell you about the muses and the allegories along the the Dome of the Capitol. It'll tell you about the Michigan clocks. It'll tell you about the, the lighting in there. It will also tell you about every single governor has a portrait placed in the capitol building. And it tells you a little bit about each governor. I want to show you what this said. This is a couple of years ago. Lauren Dickinson, Michigan's 37th governor, 1939 to 1940, Republican. Lauren Dickinson, a seven-time lieutenant governor of Michigan, became governor unexpectedly in 1939 when his predecessor, Governor Frank Fitzgerald, died in office. Aged 79 at the time, Dickinson is Michigan's oldest governor. He is also the only lieutenant governor in Michigan to assume the governor's office upon the death of his predecessor. Pay attention. A devout Christian, Dickinson, often asked pastors across the state to pray for him, thereby creating a direct pipeline to God. All right? Brought pastors in. Will you pray for me? Will you make sure I'm on the Wednesday night prayer list? Uh, Will you be my guest at a state function? And will you please remember to pray for me? That's historically true and accurate. Now, about a year ago, we get the new and improved version, Michigan State Capitol, notice it's four color now. It's the art guide, kind of shows a little bit of the dome and the allegories in the background there. I wanna show you what they did to us. Lauren Dickinson, Michigan's 37th governor, 1939 to 1940, Republican. Lauren Dickinson, a seven-time lieutenant governor of Michigan, became governor unexpectedly in 1939 when his predecessor, Governor Frank Fitzgerald, died in office. Age 79 at the time, Dickinson is Michigan's oldest governor. He is also the only lieutenant governor in Michigan to assume the governor's office upon the death of his predecessor. Please note, he appointed Matilda Dodge Wilson to serve as his lieutenant governor, making her the first woman to hold this office. What's changed? Yeah. Can I tell you something? Can I submit you just one thought? If he were a Muslim, they never would have touched that sentence. If he called on Imams to pray for him, pray to Mecca, whatever, they never would have touched that. And yet, that's our history they're destroying. That's our history they're keeping from young people. That's our history that they're taking away from them. And we don't lose our history because it's stolen from us, we lose it through ignorance and we lose it through apathy. Now, one other thing, I want you just to forgive the doe in the headlights look, but it was the only photograph I had of this. I never thought this would happen. In the late 1990s, we had a state representative by the name of Ken Bradstreet. Ken Bradstreet's a believer, he's from up by the Gaylord area, and he just wanted the Ten Commandments to be in the Capitol building. So he introduced a bill, Ten Commandments need to be in the Capitol building, and it was defeated soundly. Then he reintroduced the bill in 2000, and then 9-11 happened, September 11th, 2001. That bill is still alive, and they start to debate it, because there's a turning towards God. There's a turning towards, we need to get back to our roots. And so during the debate, even though 9-11 had happened, there were still people who were opposed to it, and uh, State Senator Minor out of Flint said, well, if you're gonna put the Ten Commandments up, I want it to be in the original Hebrew, which would have defeated having it up there. Then Ken Bradstreet came up with a great idea, and those working with him. They said, can we put historic documents up in the Capitol building, first floor of the rotunda? We'll put Hammurabi's law code. Everybody's equal under the law. The Ten Commandments, Mayflower Compact, U.S. Constitution, Declaration of Independence, Treaty of Saginaw, that gives us the state of Michigan, and it passes. An amazing thing during the, the debate of that, some of you may know the former uh, mayor of Lansing is a man by the name of Verge Bernaro. He was a state representative at the time. And as they were debating the bill, Virg Bernaro said something amazing. He said, if we oppose this bill, the posting of the Ten Commandments, we will look like a bunch of godless Democrats in a post-9-11 world hmm, I didn't coin that phrase, but I kinda like it. And so it gets put up there. And it's up there until last, last October, not this October, but a year ago. I have the largest tour I'm going to give, 270 people show up for the tour. I walk to the first floor of the Capitol building, they're gone. Now, wait a second, nobody has the right to take that down. So I approached some of the people in the Capitol building and they they said, well, you know, we're doing renovations in the Capitol building, which I understand. And then they shuffled me off to a couple of uh, people who really didn't know what was going on. Did you ever talk to somebody who said a lot of words and didn't say anything? They said, well, you know, we took them down because the frames were getting chipped and blah, blah, blah. You look at it, there's no frame there. It's a polymer. It's just a board up on the wall. And so... I wrote letters to, uh, to Gary Glenn, Lee Chatfield, Speaker of the House, Tom Leonard. Took it to State Senator Colbeck. Took it to State Senator Robertson. And they're on it, but they said follow up on it. So every once in a while, I will show up in the office. The most recent time, when I showed up at the architect, the, the person who's in charge of the Capitol, I showed up, I handed him my card, I said, I'm Tim Schmeg with the Michigan Association of Christian Schools, and he looked at me and said, you're here about the Ten Commandments, right? Yes, I'm not going away, we're not going away until they get put back up. They don't belong to any one person. They belong to the people of the state of Michigan. We have been given a sacred trust. There are things in this world that are worth fighting for. The education of future generations to be able to look to see what we have in this country, that's what we're supposed to do. In closing, turn with me, me, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 2. What's our responsibility as born-again believers? Paul's going to tell us. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, the priority, the main thing, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks, be made for all men, for kings, for all that are in authority, why, that we may lead a quiet and a peaceful life. Do you know this, peaceable life? Do you know this? The one thing, the most powerful weapon that we have is prayer. Because we pray to a powerful God. That's why the secularists want to stop anybody from ever praying at a high school commencement. Anybody from ever praying at a football game. Anybody from ever praying in a school. Prayer is powerful and we pray to a powerful God. Therefore they want it stopped. Paul says, we pray that we may lead a quiet and a peaceable life. Why do we do this? For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. He wants us to live in a godly way. He's placed us here with families, with a church, with government surrounding us. And we're supposed to be a witness. We're supposed to be a testimony for him. Will you remember to pray for your elected officials. In the state of Michigan, there are 10 leadership positions in the House of Representatives. Eight of them are held by evangelical Christians. Do you know that my counterparts in Michigan, Wisconsin, and other states can only dream about having an opportunity like that? My counterpart in Massachusetts told me one time, I have one representative I can pray with. One. We have been blessed. The Bible says too much is given, much will be required. We've been blessed with much, much will be required of us. Let's pray together tonight.